Please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, today we are on page 1,251, Colossians ch- chapter 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so, as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Um, Please keep your Bibles open to Colossians 1 this morning um, as we pray together. God, we are here before you this morning in your presence. Help us to know that, and not merely to know it academically, but to understand the sheer magnitude of the reality that is the fact that we get to come before you and be in your presence. We're reminded of that even now as we come before you in prayer. And God, we ask that uh, you would just open our eyes to see the depth of your love for us and your grace poured out for us that enables us to come before you in prayer and with our worship. God, we are your people, and it is by your grace that we say that and that we receive that truth. And so this morning, as we open the book of Colossians together, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as your children. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to take just a moment to say thank you to all of you. Um, As many of you already know, uh, just over three weeks ago, Jessica and I welcomed our son, James Parker, into the world, Uh, and in the days that have followed, we have been the recipients of an overwhelming show of support and love and prayer. We've been enjoying some time together as a family uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I owe that to you. Uh, You have uh, graciously afforded me the opportunity to be home uh, for a little while with Jessica and with James, and I am grateful for that. Many of you also know that James was born with some complications uh, that he's still not quite over, and even though Jessica and I were terribly scared for him, uh, we took a lot of comfort in knowing that our church family was in constant prayer for him and for us, and I cannot thank you enough for that. By God's grace, James is doing a lot better, uh, better and better each day. And uh, we've been encouraged to know that you love him and that you love us, and I am grateful for that. And so it seems appropriate to join you again this morning as we complete our short sermon series focused on prayer, since it has played such an important and unique role in my life over the past few weeks. And in this morning's passage, we learn how we ought to pray for one another and for those we hope to reach with the gospel. This topic is worth our time and attention to take a few weeks to focus on, because prayer is something that is often either misunderstood or undervalued or neglected for various reasons. It becomes something that we think we ought to do more of, 
rather than something that is second nature to us. And we struggle to understand the words of Paul in the, open, in the opening of our passage this morning when he says to his friends in Colossae that he has not ceased to pray for them. Because for Paul, prayer is a constant, ongoing process, not something that he feels like he needs to make a New Year's resolution to do more of. He is a man of prayer. His life and his ministry are saturated with prayer. His relationships are characterized by constant prayer. How many of us can say that we live our lives in prayer or that our relationships are described by constant prayer? As we stand, as Westgate stands on what, be, what may be the very first page in a new chapter of the life of this church, one that is characterized by outreach, by loving our neighbors and preaching the gospel in our communities and workplaces, there is perhaps nothing we need more than to learn how to depend on the Lord for success, which we do in prayer. In prayer, we remember that we are welcomed by and sent out by the God of the heavens and the earth. It is our declaration that we desperately need God's intervention, that we are not enough, but we know the one who is. And in prayer, we remember that we are on God's mission, not our own, and that we succeed in his power, not our own. Prayer gives us this confidence because we know that we have been welcomed by a God who has brought us into his presence even as we pray. In his excellent book on prayer from 2014, Tim Keller explains one of the reasons that prayer is such a source of comfort and strength for Christians. He says, we know God will answer us when we call because one terrible day he did not answer Jesus when he called. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. It is a reminder of the gospel that we can experience every time we do it. And as we do, we are both comforted and strengthened for the work that God has appointed us to carry out. Paul understood that, I think, and he lived his life in prayer, some of which is recorded for us here in Colossians chapter 1. In the passage we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing to encourage a church in the town of Colossae, made up almost entirely of people that he does not know personally. This church was planted by someone who had come and heard Paul's presentation of the gospel in Ephesus, and then went back to his hometown and became an evangelist there among his neighbors. And though the church there had grown and become established, it is certainly still vulnerable. And within a few years... As ministry as Colossae and the surrounding region had gained some momentum, threats to the health of this congregation had crept in because that is the way it will always work. As the gospel is moving and souls are being won for Christ, the enemy of the church is at work to disrupt the growth of the kingdom. That is something I think we must keep in mind and be wary of here at Westgate as we sense that the Lord is leading us into greater and more focused evangelism in our communities. Because the devil would prefer us to meet every Sunday without ever talking to our friends about our faith. But when we take seriously the call of Christ to make disciples, to speak the truth of the gospel to our neighbors and in our communities, and when people begin to come to God in saving faith, the enemy of the church is provoked to disrupt that work 
by sowing lies and division and disunity. And so for the church of Colossae, that worked out in an influential leader who had risen up within the congregation, someone who claimed to have a better way than what was being preached, a more trustworthy path to God than what was being proclaimed there. And even though scholars today are divided on exactly what was being proclaimed by this false teacher, the influence that he had is clear. He had begun to divide the church, to draw some people away from the pure gospel message of salvation by faith in Christ alone. And this is a crisis for the church in Colossae. And even though Paul does not know most of the people in this church personally, he does consider them his brothers and his sisters He cares deeply for them and even more for the God that they worship whose gospel is being tarnished and disrupted. And though Paul would certainly have preferred to visit Colossae in person to confront this false teacher himself, he can't because at the time that all of this was taking place and the book of Colossians was written down, Paul was sitting in a prison cell in Rome where he would spend the remaining years of his life until his execution. There is nothing he can do but write this letter and pray, which he does unceasingly. It's an uncomfortable position for him to be in, just as it is for any of us when we face a crisis that we are powerless to stop. When we face something painful or heartbreaking that we cannot fix, we feel helpless and lost. But in those moments, if we meet them in faith, we can discover how much we truly need God's strength and how in Christ we have it in abundance. And so Paul, in chains, prays for his friends and writes them this letter to encourage them. His prayer is essentially for two things, and neither of them, I think, should really surprise us. He prays that they would know the truth, and he prays that they would have the strength to cling to it. His constant prayers begin with the requests that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to know the truth, to know God's will, so that they won't be led astray by lies. It's something that Paul prayed for often, which we can see throughout his writing. He prayed for the church in Philippi that they would have abundant love with knowledge and all discernment. He prayed for his friends in Ephesus that God would grant the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him. And later says in the book of Ephesians, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, so that you may be filled with with the fullness of God. Paul understood the relationship between knowledge of the truth and life in God's kingdom. He had the strength and health of the Christian mind in view, and he prioritizes the strength and health of the Christian mind so that we might know what undergirds all a Christian life. It's an important concept one which Paul clearly emphasized often, and one which I think we need to hear and be reminded of often. We ought to meditate on and examine and consider God's Word carefully. We should develop critical thinking skills and ask difficult questions to do with theology and ontology and philosophy. We should not settle for, as Paul phrases it, 
spiritual milk. We should rather strive for spiritual meat, the more intellectually challenging of the things that God has revealed about himself. Though sadly, that is not what Christians always strive for. Some people argue that we should just keep things simple. And it calls to mind the moment when Jesus told his disciples that anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And on the basis of Jesus' words there, some have argued that we do not need to concern ourselves with theological arguments or doctrinal disagreements because what Jesus really wants is our childlike trust. We need not stress about or fight over the details. What's really important is that we know that Jesus is the Savior. That's it. And if we know that and we cling to that, and that alone, that we are ultimately really better off than if we had labored over all the theological implications and questions. We are sometimes encouraged, I think, to approach our relationship with God in the same way that I approach my relationship with my laptop. I know that I can turn on my laptop, that I can send emails, that I can type sermons, that I can order decorative birdhouses on Amazon, but I have no idea how it works. I am literally baffled uh, by how computers work, and I honestly have no real interest in learning how they work. And so far, in my life, that has not been an issue. I don't need to know how my computer works in order for it to work. So my assumption that there is a little wizard who lives inside my computer, who sends my emails for me and orders my birdhouses for me, is just as effective as if I actually had a working understanding of how computers work. But is that what Scripture instructs us to do as we approach a relationship with God? Does it tell us that we don't need to know how God works, only that we need to know that He works? Some argue that difficult theological or doctrinal questions only divide us from one another and ultimately do more harm than good. And that isn't entirely wrong that these questions divide us. 2,000 years of church history prove that doctrinal differences have driven wedges between branches of Christianity from its very beginning. And so some argue that what we need and all we need are the basics, the bare essentials, that to go beyond that is unnecessary and divisive and evidently ultimately prohibited by Jesus himself. And I guess I would be fine with that interpretation of Jesus' words if it weren't so clear that that is absolutely not how Paul understood Jesus' words, which we see in his repeated emphasis on knowledge and wisdom and discernment of the truth. Paul, I think, is very clearly not content for any Christian to settle for the bare essentials, to simply say, Jesus loves me, this I know, period, full stop, end of story. He is praying and pouring his heart out before God that these Christians in Colossae would have such a deep and deepening knowledge of God that it cuts through false teaching like a razor-sharp sword. Certainly, it is true that Jesus commands us to have childlike faith, to trust Him as we trusted our parents to love and care for us when we were little, but it is also dangerous for us to avoid deeper knowledge and questions of theology. It is dangerous because it exposes us to the subtle threat of distortion. 
False teaching, like what was faced in Colossae, does not deny Jesus outright. Instead, it twists our understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. It is the subtle and incremental movement away from Jesus' supremacy, from his divinity, from his eminence, and from his sufficiency. It tells us, as it did in Colossae, that Jesus was a great guy, a great teacher, a great leader, that he showed us the way. But in order to have true life and fulfillment, we need something else too. That we need something more than Jesus himself. And if Jesus had carried us most of the way, then what we need is something we find elsewhere. As if Jesus carried us almost all the way to the the finish line, and now all we need are some good works, some sacraments or sacrifices, or some sort of spiritual awakening. That is the essence of every lie that has corrupted the church since the first century, that Jesus is not quite enough, that we need something in addition to Jesus if we are to have abundant life and fulfillment and lasting joy. Paul is convinced that what we need is Jesus alone, to know him and to be known by him and to know that he is enough to know the gospel, to know the truth, and to meditate on it. And that as we mine the depths of godly wisdom and knowledge and understanding, we will know him more closely and his gospel more deeply. He isn't hoping for an awareness of simple facts like 2 plus 2 equaling 4. He has in mind a knowledge that radically transforms who we are. Christian lives are reshaped informed by what we know about our salvation and the one who saves. We see that very clearly in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, when Paul encourages the church, telling them, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The transformation of the Christian life begins inwardly and works itself outward, We do not become the people of God simply by behaving like the people of God. The ancient Israelites had the law to govern every aspect of their lives, and yet all they succeeded in doing was polishing their outward appearance. Inwardly, they were who they had always been. Scripture reminds us that becoming who God has called us to be begins with inward transformation that bears its fruit in our lives, our character, our relationships, and our worldview. Scripture encourages us and all believers to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we will be able to test and approve what is God's will, His good and acceptable and perfect will. It is a transformation from the inside out, and it begins with our mind. We should not be content with simply knowing, like I do with my computer, how it works. We should not content ourselves with that, even if that's all that's necessary. We should not be content because we leave ourselves vulnerable to lies if we do so. We should long for more and greater knowledge of God and His saving work to understand it, and to savor it more each day so that our lives might be characterized by worship. That is exactly the logic of Paul's prayer for his friends in Colossae here 
in chapter 1, which we can see in the beginning of verse 10. He prays that they will be filled with knowledge so that they will walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul is hopeful that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they will be able to live lives full of worship. This is Paul's second prayer for the church in Colossae, that their conduct, the character of their lives would be renewed. And he is praying that their lives will reflect their salvation. And being filled with the knowledge of God, the people will be made new in several ways, which we see in his prayer. First, he prays that their behavior will be transformed. He prays that with heads full of knowledge of the truth, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The logic behind these words is easy to see. If we learn something new, it has an effect on us, on the way we live our lives. If I learn that I just won $10 in a drawing, it might change the way I think about what I'm going to have for lunch today. If I learn that I just won a million dollars in a drawing, it might change the way I think about the rest of my life. If I learn that I have just been ransomed from death by the atoning sacrifice of the Son of God, it will change the very fabric of my existence. It will change my life and make it my worship. Rather than encouraging them to follow a set of laws or to attend worship services, Paul makes significantly, a significantly greater suggestion to them that their entire lives become their worship. That's the end game of being transformed by the renewal of our minds, as Paul said in Romans 12, that all of life becomes oriented toward living in joyful satisfaction with God in such a way that we bear fruit in every good work and also in increasing knowledge, which Paul hopes for in addition to behavior change. One scholar commenting on this verse describes the Christian life as an upward spiral, that the more we know of God, the more we want to know of God, and the more we discover in a never-ending cycle of fascination and satisfaction. It's like reading a good book that just keeps getting better as it goes. Chapter after chapter, the story gets better and more detailed and more immersive, and with each page we finish, we get more excited for the next one. Only this book does not have a last chapter. There is no end to the story that God is telling about himself in which we find ourselves as objects of his love. Paul knows for himself that there is no end to the things we might learn about God, and he desires that believers in Colossae would know him more each day and that they will never feel they've reached the bottom of the well. And with behavior and minds characterized by knowing God, Paul looks to God for the strength of the people to withstand the storms that will come. I'm intrigued, reading this prayer, by what Paul does not pray for in this passage. He does not pray, and perhaps you've already noticed this, he does not pray that the challenges facing the church in Colossae would simply disappear. Obviously, Paul is opposed to this false teaching. He sees it as a threat to the health of this church. He wants to mitigate its influence, but he does not simply ask that God would make the problem go away. Instead, he prays that the people of this church, knowing the gospel and knowing God's will, would have the strength to persevere in the midst of the difficulties that they face. He could simply have asked that things would get easier, but he didn't. He asks for strength to face the challenge. I'm convicted by that because I think I probably would have just asked God to make the problem go away. 
But Paul wants something better for his friends at Colossae. He wants the church to depend on God, to know that as they do so, he will prove himself dependable, to persevere in God's strength because in doing so, we come to know God's love more deeply still than we did before. Our worship will be greater if God sustains us through hardship than if we had never had to endure it in the first place. That is exactly what happened in Paul's own life. When he suffered and God sustained him, he came to know God even more. And though we are tempted to rely on our own strength, our own wit, our own tenacity, and our own cleverness, what we truly need is to be more thrilled with our Savior than we would be with the prospect of an easier life. So Paul prays that the church in Colossae would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. It is not their own power that will get them through. It is God's power. And in receiving it, they will know his glory and his love for them all the more. Paul's hope for them is that they would lean not on their own strength, but on the Lord of hosts who has promised them his protection. The God who created, who rules, who raised up a people for himself, who pours out justice, and who overcame death, promises to give his strength to those to look for, to, who look to him for deliverance. And on that basis, Paul makes his final request for his friends in Colossae, the final request of this prayer, that the people of this church would have joy and thankfulness. It can be hard, I think, to understand the way that Paul writes about suffering and hardship throughout his epistles, because he doesn't face these things the same way that I think we often do. He does not see suffering as something to be feared, but as something that, in his own suffering, Christ redeemed for all of his people. So that in our pain, we are united with Christ, who proves his sufficiency for us in our weakness. And on that basis, Paul knows that these people have reasons for thanksgiving, even as they endure hardship. Regardless of whether it is the struggle against false teaching in their church, or with illness, or with economic difficulty, or with any pain that they might experience in life. All of that is in view here, which we can see in Paul's request that they have patience. He has more in mind than simply this church disagreement that's taking place in Colossae, and we, we can see that in his use of the word patience. The word that Paul uses for the word patience uh, in this verse used to be translated differently with a little bit more of an old-fashioned word. Paul's prayer uh, is that these people would be long-suffering, which is a word that I don't think we use all that much anymore, and so translators have opted for the word patience, which unfortunately I don't think packs quite as much punch. Because the word long-suffering suggests that there is a certainty of suffering in life. Hardship that Paul knows is coming for these people. And so he doesn't pray that they would never face trials, he prays that they would be long-suffering, that even as they do, they would have joy and endurance and reasons to give God thanks. It's an, it's an idea, a concept that Paul himself lived out because his life was full of suffering. Even now, as he writes this letter, he is imprisoned, awaiting the day of his inevitable execution, yet he has joy and thankfulness toward God. 
And we might wonder how in the world such a perspective is possible, how anyone could have such endless optimism. Because if I'm honest, it's all too easy for me to feel like the universe, the whole universe has been set against me. If I get a flat tire or I spill my coffee or I lose my car keys, I certainly don't feel thankful. I feel frustrated that I've got to deal with this stuff. And my attitude gets worse as the stakes get higher. If I lose something or someone I love or I face a financial shortfall or if my health or the health of someone I love is compromised, I would be even more prone, I am even more prone to feel overwhelmed by my circumstances. So as I consider Paul in his chains or the Colossian believers in their fledgling church struggling to survive the mounting division in their midst, I need to know how it is that these believers can have true and enduring joy as they face such circumstances. Yet, even before this question has formed on my lips, Paul has an answer ready for me. All Christians, all of us, Give thanks to our Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us, Paul says, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is a work already finished by a Savior who has already redeemed. And this is the basis for the joy, the enduring joy of these Colossian believers, of the Apostle Paul, and of all Christians through all the centuries, and even of us. We have been delivered from darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. It is finished. Darkness has lost, and light and life have won. So we have joy. Even when the shadows of a vanquished darkness creep into our lives, we know that we dwell in light. That is the foundation of Paul's hope for the Colossian church, that they would know who they are and whose they are, that they have already been redeemed and brought into the kingdom of God's Son, and that in knowing these things, they would be made new, that they would be filled with this knowledge of God's will for them to know Him and to be known by Him in love, and to have their entire lives made new in this gospel truth. Paul is pointing to the church to this simple and profound reminder of the whole gospel itself, that God has made us His own by the costly work of redemption and forgiveness, a work that demanded the blood of Jesus Christ in our place. Paul hopes that his friends in Colossae will remember that and cling to it, even as other ideas are thrown around. So from his jail cell, he is praying for them. And I find it interesting that he's telling them about it, that he's telling them about his prayer. I mean, he could have just prayed for them, had a conversation with God, you know, between himself and God, and then written them a letter to encourage them about the gospel about maintaining the undiluted gospel, but instead he sends them this synopsis of his prayer for them in the opening of his letter. And I draw a couple of quick conclusions from that observation. First, I can say from very recent experience that it is profoundly encouraging to know that people are praying for you. 
I was strengthened in knowing that you all were praying for James and for Jessica after he was born. It is helpful to know that your brothers and sisters are with you, bearing your burdens with you, and lifting you up before the Lord. So perhaps maybe we should do even more of this. Maybe we should send a quick text every now and then, unsolicited. Hey, I just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you, that I'm lifting up your situation to the Lord. Second, Paul seems to know, seems them to, seems to want them to know exactly what he's praying for specifically. He wants them to know that he is hopeful that they will be filled with the knowledge of the truth and that their lives will be made new as a result. He wants them to know that God is the one who will do these things and that God has already made them his own. Because prayer is a reminder that we are God's children already. That we can come to him with our fears, with our joys, our thanks, and our praise because he has already made us his own. It is the life-giving, spirit-lifting reminder that God has already won salvation for us. And he wants to remind them of that by telling them how he's praying for them. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, prayer is like waking up from a nightmare to reality. When we laugh at what we took so seriously inside the dream, and we realize that all is truly well. So Paul introduces his letter to this struggling church with this wake-up call to them. The nightmare they're facing really is scary. The hardships they will face really will be difficult. But in prayer, we are reminded that the war against the darkness has already been won. And that truth should govern the way that we pray for those that we hope to reach, and it should pray for those that we share our salvation with. That truth should inform how we pray. From the day that Paul heard about the challenges within this church, he has not stopped praying about it and for these people. And I'm convinced that as we, as Westgate Church, moves into a season of revitalized outreach and kingdom work in our communities, we must do so with certain things in mind that this passage reminds us of. Our outreach must be characterized by three key ideas, which we'll move through quickly during our last few minutes together. First, everything we do, all of it, must be saturated with prayer. That's what this whole series on prayer was designed to help us remember and reflect on. Our tendency, I think, is to strategize and mobilize and to move based on our strengths and our ideas for success. And while that passion is certainly one that we desire to cultivate here at Westgate, we are reminded that even the Apostle Paul lived in constant prayer for his own outreach efforts. He knew, and we must remember, that as we plant the seeds of the gospel, God is the one who gives the growth. So even our best strategies for outreach will fail if God does not grant spiritual revival. We must pray in hopeful expectation that God will move and that he will use our effort to awaken in our communities a thirst for the truth and hope found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must remain hopeful that God will move to transform whole lives and communities. I think it can be easy to be discouraged by our circumstances. We live in one of the most unchurched regions of the country, perhaps in the world, in cities and towns that have largely abandoned matters of faith, 
We see news stories that remind us our culture is moving further and further from a worldview that has been shaped by God's Word. We see societal transformation that disregards God's existence, let alone His ongoing activity and participation in history and His imminent return. And confronted by these observations, we wonder whether there is any hope at all for our neighbors in the first place. Christians often point to, I hear this all the time, I've said it myself, Christians often point to a fear of rejection as the reason why we are shy and silent when it comes to sharing our faith. Because we fear the way it will affect our relationships, our friendships, whether it will damage our workplace relationships or create awkward tension with those that we try to reach if they reject our message. But I am convinced that it is not a fear of rejection that stifles our evangelism as much as it is any doubt that there is hope at all. We think that friend, that neighbor, this part of the world is too far gone, too far away to ever come back. Our silence on evangelism, our silence with regard to sharing our faith, is driven less by our fear of rejection than it is by our lack of hope that God is able to save. The far greater reason we are silent is that we doubt the lost can really be found. We must maintain hope that is rooted in God's proven power to bring light and life out of darkness because we have already been, we have already been brought from death to life and from darkness into light. Our Savior is the one who leaves the 99 sheep in search of the one who has wandered off. He is the one who calls out to the rebel and the prodigal. He is the one who seeks and saves the lost. He is the God who called out to the author of this letter, to the the, the book of Colossians. He calls out to Paul who is persecuting Christ's followers and condemning them to imprisonment and death, who is persecuting Jesus Christ himself in order to give Paul new life as a servant in God's kingdom. And as Paul sits imprisoned, helpless to affect the situation in Colossae, he knows that hope is not lost because the gospel moves according to God's power, not his own. There is no one we should consider beyond God's reach, no one whose strength to resist God's call is greater than his power to call them home. If we do this in our strength and according to our cleverness and our ability and with our winsome presentations of the gospel, we will break under the discouragement of our failure. So we must remember and set our hope on the fact that our God is at work. And by His grace, He has chosen to work through us. So there is a reason for us to hope, even in the face of such seemingly insurmountable odds. Lastly, all our outreach efforts, everything we do and say, must be rooted in and full of the gospel itself. There is nothing greater, nothing more important than for those who Uh, for those we reach, to hear and believe the good news that God has made a way for them to have life by giving His own to atone for their sin. It is not the doorway to Christianity that we leave behind after we've received it. The gospel is the whole of Christianity, the reason that we have ongoing and enduring life and joy. We must not be tempted to see that any other need we face is tantamount. Years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Kenya a couple of times. It was an incredible opportunity and experience uh, that I was thankful for. 
I had been invited by an organization uh, that was at work um, drilling water wells in the northernmost part of Kenya in the desert uh, where it had not rained for more than seven years. And for the people who lived in that part of the world, it was an absolutely devastating drought. And I had helped to raise uh, money for a water well drilling project and had the opportunity to see firsthand how a source of clean water in the desert can change and save lives. For people who had suffered so immensely, who had lost almost everything, it was not hard for me to be overwhelmed by the difference that a water well can make. And while I was there, being overwhelmed by seeing the difference that these wells can make, I also got to attend worship at a church that was planted right next to the very first water well that we helped to drill. And it was important for me to see that too. The churches we visited reminded, reminded me and proclaimed to the people that the living water has come, that those who receive him will never, ever thirst again. I was absolutely happy and proud to be a part of the work that saved literally thousands and thousands of lives. But if that's all we're doing, if all we're doing is drilling water wells in the desert, then all we're doing is quenching people's thirst on their way to hell. We must never, ever lose sight of humanity's greatest need, which is for Jesus Christ himself, who gives us life in laying down his own. The gospel is what our neighbors need. It is what our friends and families need. It is what we need. And if we satisfy ourselves with anything less, we are lost, and so are our neighbors. So this is my prayer for our neighbors, and hopefully yours too. That in God's power, he would give them knowledge of his will. Knowledge that leads to true repentance and true belief in the gospel that gives the strength to endure and whole life transformation for the glory of God. Let everything we do to reach our neighbors moving forward be saturated with this prayer, full of hope and rooted in the pure gospel message that saves. Let us devote ourselves to this work, to the work that God has appointed us to carry out, and let us do so in His strength, with prayer and hopeful anticipation, and with only the gospel of Jesus Christ to offer. Would you pray with me? God, we are humbled, humbled to stand before you this morning, humbled to receive uh, this good news, the good news of your gospel as we reflect on it and rejoice in it again this morning. God, we, we are humbled because we know it is not what we deserve. We do not deserve your favor, your affection, or your love, and yet you give it. We are humbled by that, God, and we ask that you would use us, that you would equip us, that you would enable us to be instruments of gospel proclamation in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, and among those whom you bring into our spheres of influence. God, we ask that in your strength, you would accomplish all that you have in mind to do, that you would bring revival, that you would open eyes and ears to know you, to know the truth, and to be transformed by it. We are grateful this morning, 
We pray with expectation in the name of your Son. Amen.